Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Pat with the Cast Right Catholic Podcast. It has been some time now. It's probably been a month and a half, maybe even more, since I posted. And a lot has happened. A lot has changed in my life. Um, five weeks ago, my second son, Benjamin Joseph, was born. And um, that's made it a little bit difficult to record something or get together with John to record something. But I wanted to check in and um, I apologize because <laughs> the only thing that's going to really bind together what I'm going to say today is the fact that it's what I've been reflecting on for the past five weeks since Ben was born. So it's going to be a little bit stream of consciousness and um, I hope that it's still meaningful and that there's still something in this reflection and um, even in the vulnerability that Maybe we'll come out through parts of it that'll be helpful and, and fruitful for your life. Um, so the truth is, it's been hard. It's been amazing. It's been beautiful. It's been joyful. And it's just hard. Um, it's definitely beautiful. Actually, my um, wife received this article um, she received an email with an article from a really good friend of ours about how having a newborn, having a baby reveals God. And it's true. And that's actually something that my um, mother-in-law and I have talked about some. And she's she's been amazingly helpful um, and was particularly helpful in those early weeks after Ben was born Um she did the same thing when, when Luke was born and um, has just been around a lot to, to sort of help keep things clean and help keep our family family life on um, from going off the rails. And But she says how when you're standing there holding a newborn, there's this intimacy and innocence that just reverberates throughout your whole being and transmits this sort of secret but certain knowledge that there must be a God. There's just something in the feel of a newborn's soft skin, the sweetness of their face when they sleep that is really penetrating spiritually. And that's so true. But I almost wanted the article that this friend sent to talk about how hard it is. Um, Nothing, this was true with Luke too, nothing in my life has caused me to confront my own selfishness, my own self-centeredness, like having a new baby. Um... And I almost wanted the article to talk about that. (laughs) To talk about the frustration that you feel late at night when you can't get them back to sleep and it's 3 a.m. and you just want to go to bed and they're fed and you know they're fed and they have a clean diaper but somehow they still cannot get themselves to sleep and they're crying and whimpering and they won't take the pacifier. How in that exhaustion you can actually feel bitter about your newborn. You can actually be angry at them 
that you can think and feel these thoughts and emotions that make you feel guilty in the light of day after the night is over and you've successfully survived it. These thoughts and feelings that are just this anger that you realize later is irrational at your own newborn. I almost wanted to read an article about that because um, sometimes you wonder if you're alone in feeling or thinking those things with your newborn. And it's, it's not true because I think that most people go through that. But you see that there's something within the choice that causes an ongoing regeneration within me. And what I mean by the choice is, is that despite those emotions, despite that interior conflict, despite that anger late at night and the exhaustion of those you know, 3 a.m. feedings, when you're just trying to do the diaper change, rock them, get them back to sleep, Something about the choice in that moment of I will still be your father. I will keep being your father even though I'm exhausted, even though I'm angry, even though I'm upset, even though I'm afraid. I will continue to do this. I actually was talking to my wife about that on one of our walks um, a couple weeks ago. and She was tired. And she was sort of you know, lamenting some of, some of these same things. And I was like, you know, she said it makes her feel like such a bad mom. And I said, but you're, you're not for the very reason that you still chose to feed him. <laughs> and she said, well, I don't have a choice. And that's, that's actually not true. We do. We have a choice every night, every time, every day. There is this choice before us. And in that continuing to choose to be father to him, continuing to choose to be mother to him with openness and love, that that generosity is regenerating life within us, that it's budding somewhere deep inside my soul and then metastasizing, but not metastasizing like a cancer, but like a new life that's full of abundance and gradually spreading throughout my being, conquering and displacing my self-centeredness that I need this. I need Ben to help me learn how to love, to help me learn the truth of my humanity, to help me live out the reality of what I'm created to be as one who is designed by love, for love, and to love. There's, um, there's actually this book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. And I don't remember the exact quote. I should have just looked it up. But he says something along the lines of, you know, for the, for the pagan or for the, non, the non-believer, the other person never becomes a burden. The other person never becomes a burden to you. But for the Christian, the other must become a burden. And at first it sounds wrong, but it's not, it's not. It's actually really true that we must allow others to become a burden to us because it's in allowing them to become a burden to us that we actually learn to love them, that we have to bear them in their full existence and in their full freedom. 
you know, sometimes with a newborn, you think, oh, I want, I want to have X number of kids. And I want my life to look this way. But you don't have total control over what that newborn baby is like. You don't have control over their sleeping habits, their eating habits, their size. You don't have control over when they reach 10 pounds and can start sleeping through the night. You don't have control over any of that. You have to bear them in the reality of their existence as it is, which can be a tremendous burden. And that's not saying that it's a bad thing. It's saying that it's a challenge, that it's not exactly what we designed or fantasized about or idealized, that we have to encounter reality as it is and give the other person the space to fully be what they are, to become a burden to us. I call that constant choosing and that openness to allowing the other to become a burden to us, the, the pro-life mindset. I know I'm not trying to tread into politics here. I know abortion is one of those hot-button political issues. And a lot of times the debate is centered around rights, the right to life, the right to choose, the rights of the woman, the rights of the baby. One of the most, one of the more important facets of it, I find, is just the dynamic itself, the relational dynamic of what it means, of what it means for the rest of us, what it means for you and for me. That's actually what Mother Teresa focused on in her Nobel Peace Prize speech. She talked about abortion and she said that if this is allowed, then what is left between you and me. Like I said, I'm, it's a complicated issue. It's a drawn out debate. Lots of people have lots of thoughts. I'm not trying to oversimplify. But there is a certain level on which what abortion actually is, is just a manifestation of all of our worst habit. The worst habit that all of us share. And that's the unwillingness to be inconvenienced by the existence of another. They exist. Now what do I do in response to their existence? What is my response to your existence and the challenges and inconveniences that you impose on my life as a result? That when your child grows up to be 15 and they choose to do something that you don't want them to do, you have to continue to bear their freedom. You have to continue to be their parent. That's something that exists on... You know, that's a more intimate and involved level. But I, I think about how this applies even to just my daily interactions with my neighbors. The time when I walk out and I see one neighbor, you know, coming down the same path that I was going to walk up to get to my car. And how I decide to find a different way or go back inside the house for just a minute until they pass because I just don't want to deal with the conversation. I just don't feel like talking to somebody. That I recognize their existence and I avoid it. That the Good Samaritan story that's so well known actually impacts so many levels of our existence that going to the other side of the street to avoid this person because of what we will what it means that we have to confront their existence 
the inconvenience that it can impose, the challenges that it can bring, that I don't want to engage the ministry of bearing, which is what Bonhoeffer ultimately calls the ministry of the Christian, the ministry of bearing. I don't want to bear the burden of your existence. I don't want to bear the burden of your freedom. I don't want to bear the burden of of the inconvenience you introduce into my life. I do that in so many ways. And I'm tempted to do it every night with my newborn son. And I'm tempted to do it every day with my neighbor. So I, I don't mean this as an admonition or a condemnation. This is honestly just a confession that I don't choose love most days. That most days I find a way to terminate the existence of my neighbor because I don't want to deal with their existence, with the reality of their existence and the inconvenience that it introduces to my life. I find a way to terminate their existence in some way. And we even, we even do this on a, on a different level with our debates about different things in society today, talking about hot-button issues. How often we, in the name of our love for humanity, denounce our neighbor because of the opinions that they hold. That in the name of faceless, nameless humanity and our love for it, we simply cannot deal with this particular person who actually has a name, who actually exists. That in the name of the abstract concept of humanity, we refuse to acknowledge the humanity and reality of this neighbor because of what they think about something because of where they are in their own personal development and thought process on a particular issue. Actually, there's this book. It's one of my favorite books of all time, one of my favorite novels. It's called The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And he has a, um, a sort of spiritual sage in the beginning of the novel called The Elder Zosima. And so if, if you've ever read Les Mis or seen the play or, um, or the movie that, that came out, it's... Uh, Elder Zosima is kind of like the bishop. What the bishop is to Les Mis, you know, the one who he sort of ruptures the broken patterns of Jean Valjean's life and invites him into a new way of living. He's the, he's the spiritual sage. He's the Christ figure, the wise figure in Les Mis. Well, that's sort of what, in a, in a different sense, Elder Zosima is in the Brothers Karamazov. And there's a scene where there's this woman who's coming to him for advice and counsel. And she shares, she pours out all these desires she has to serve and to love humanity, all these things she wants to do for humanity. And yet how every time she actually then goes to serve, she wanted to do all these great things and then she entered nursing and she's nursing this man who is ungrateful, who's even toxic and rude to her. And immediately all of the desires and love for humanity just seem to, to fade away from her. And suddenly she can't deal with this actual human being. We're like that so often that we have all these great ideas and we, we think that, you know, my, my way of thinking is the best for humanity. And yet when it comes to actually loving a particular person, 
we come into contact with all their warts and difficulties and we denounce them. And yet that's exactly where love occurs, is in that particularity. That's exactly where the, choo- the choice for life or not life occurs. In that very moment when we're actually encountering a particular person, a real existing person with a face and a name. And what do we do with their existence? How do we respond to the reality that this person exists and has come into my life? When I was in law school, when I finished law school, I remember my now wife, then girlfriend, asked me what was the most important thing I learned in law school. And I remember thinking about it for a second, and then I knew. I knew right away that the most important thing I learned in law school was to be interruptible. To be interruptible. What I meant by that is that you can have all these assignments, these things you need to do. And I'd be sitting in the library, and then if someone came up to talk, to let them interrupt what I was doing, and then to turn my attention to them. Or if it was after mass in the morning, there is this family with a bunch of little kids and they had a little boy and I'd sit there and try to pray my rosary after mass and this one little boy would always run up, his name was Paul, to try to talk to me, to allow him to interrupt me. I tried so hard to see the face and seek the face of Christ in my study, in my study of the law. And then I had to learn that shifting my focus from the study to this person who wanted to talk was going from Jesus to Jesus. That going from this intimate prayer to talking to Paul was going from Jesus to Jesus. That we needed to be, that I needed to be interruptible. That I needed to bear the existence of other people and discover within them the reality of Christ encountering me through them. And that if I could live that way, I would actually live in love. See, at root, I really just have one desire, and we all really just have one desire at our deepest core. And that's to love well, to get to the end of this life and come face to face with God and have him say, well done, my good and faithful servant, you loved well. And so I think about that every night, you know, every day. What am I choosing? Others exist. How do I respond to their existence? Am I seeking the face of Christ there? Am I letting him interrupt me? Right in the gospel this morning, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees. Why don't your disciples fast? And he says, well, the bridegroom's with them and there will be a time when the bridegroom is not with him, and then they will fast, and he's giving this talk. And then some guy comes up, and he's like, hey, my daughter's dying. And he's in the middle of a talk, but he turns, and he sees this man in his suffering, and he goes with him and says, take me to her. And then he's going to try to help this man whose daughter is sick, and another lady grabs his cloak, and he turns and looks at her and says, My daughter, your faith has saved you. Let it be done to you according to your faith. 
that Jesus is constantly being interrupted, but he turns his gaze. And with turning his gaze, he turns his whole attention and his whole compassion to this one who has interrupted him, recognizing within them the invitation from the Father to love, to live out the reality of who he is as Jesus Christ, as the bridegroom of humanity, as the lover of souls, as the redeemer of the universe, as the savior of the world. He responds and lives out that reality by being interruptible and recognizing in each person the invitation of the Father to be who he is. And I want to live that way. I want to live that way. It's the last story. Someone, a friend of mine, sent me a text about Mother Teresa. I brought her up earlier. seems fitting to end with her. But she... um, She was talking to this bishop, um, and the bishop was retelling a story in in the snippet of text that my friend sent me. And um, she said to the bishop, do you want to see Jesus? And he said, yes. And then she took him outside, and they walked into this poor, poor area of Calcutta and turned the corner, and there was this man who was lying on the ground, and he was sick, and he was covered in maggots, that were eating away at his flesh. And she kneeled down and she cradled him in her arms with warmth and gentleness and love and tenderness. And then she looked up at the bishop and she said, here he is. And all of us hear that story and we're so inspired by it. Wow, that's amazing that, you know, Mother Teresa saw in this man, Jesus Christ, when most of the rest of the world saw no one, saw an inconvenience, saw a burden, saw something to avoid, something to step around. She saw Christ and she moved towards him. But the truth is, is that was Mother Teresa's vocation. She was called by God to do that, to serve the poorest of the poor. That is who she is, who she was called to be, was to serve those people. And the great mystery is that All of us in our vocation have that exact same invitation, and yet we grumble and groan about the invitation, failing to recognize in it what Mother Teresa did. That Jesus wants to pervade and permeate the entire universe, and so he calls us each in our unique place to encounter him there. That he is actually there waiting for me to do the dishes with him. That he is actually there in my frustrated and tired wife, in my difficult co-worker, in my fussy newborn son, that he is in all these places, even as much as he was in that poor man that Mother Teresa picked up. And I, in my vocation, need to recognize him there, recognize him at the kitchen sink where the dishes need to be done. Recognize him in the newborn son who can't fall asleep and cradle him and do the task with warmth and love and gentleness. That's the way. That's the way that generosity buds and emerges in us with a new vitality so that we become a new humanity, a sacrament, an icon of Jesus Christ, of love itself. I want to live this way 
And it's been the struggle of learning all my own interior deficiencies that has really laced and defined and covered the past five weeks since Ben was born. Recognizing my own weakness, my own incapacity. But the great mystery of Christian conviction is that it is always simultaneous with the advent of redemptive grace. In fact, grace precedes conviction. That in the moment we're able to see that weakness, that gap, that deficiency, grace in its redemptive work has already begun in our hearts. In that Dostoevsky novel, this lady I was talking about, when she finishes her confession to the elder Zosima, he encourages her to continue on her way and says, it is enough that you realize this. It's enough that you see. It is enough. Because that means that grace has begun its work. That we're gradually, over time, being reformed. And I pray and hope that's true for me and will continue to be true for me. And I pray that um, I can continue to say yes, to choose life every single day and every single night for my family at the kitchen sink doing dishes, at the crib side, the bassinet side, trying to get a little boy to sleep every night, at my wife's side, trying to comfort and encourage her. And... Um, as I walk out of my house and encounter my neighbors, that I'd enter into the ministry of bearing. I'd let others become a burden and the full magnitude of their existence, an inconvenience, a challenge, and a difficulty to me, recognizing in that opportunity the invitation from the Father to love and to live out the reality of who I am and the station in life that um, He has assigned to me. And I pray the same for all of um, all of you guys, and, and I hope that you'll pray for me too. Um, so thanks for listening. Um, I appreciate it, guys. And until next time, this has been the Cast Right Catholic Podcast.